Welcome. Welcome to Awakening Torah Musar Mindfulness. Allow yourselves to settle and arrive. We will begin in one minute. Welcome. Welcome to Awakening Torah Musar Mindfulness. I am Rabbi Chasya Uriel Steinbauer, founder and director of the Institute for Holiness Kihilat Musar. You are joining us live on Zoom and live streaming on Facebook YouTube channel, LinkedIn, and Twitter, welcome on Sundays at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time here in Israel at 10 p.m. Welcome to all of you from all over the world who are joining us. I'm delighted. Today is a Sunday, the 15th of March, the 14th of ER. We are in the middle of counting the Omer, which I will touch upon in a bit. We begin with our kavanah, our intention for today's talk and practice together, our seated mindfulness meditation practice after we dive into the Torah portion together and encounter it. I'm going to share screen for those of you on video. For those of you who are here on auto, audio, uh, you will hear me read this. Uh, so, it, we start with the first two covenants, uh, the first one and the last one. And if you're joining us, I just ask that you mute yourself until we have a chance to have some comments and questions and answers at the end of the session. So we begin with number one, before doing acts of caring for the self, which we see this practice together on Sundays as self-care, that this is something that we are doing to strengthen our own souls in order to be of benefit to others in the future. And our last kavanah is down at the bottom because we see this as doing an act to strengthen our relationship with the divine, however we define that. So that we say this is something that we are doing to strengthen our relationship with the creator so that we can be a better conduit of God's good to others when they need us, and may it be so. So that is our wish and our intention for today's session as we move in. So as I had taught a couple sessions ago, after Passover, there was a slight shift in what Torah portion we were covering. So here, because Israel only covers seven days of the Passover holiday versus nine outside of Israel, who, when we are observing which Torah portion has shifted a tiny bit. So for us here in Israel, last Shabbat, we had covered the Parsha of Bahar. And for those of you outside of Israel, you will be covering it this coming Sabbath. So either way, you will be able to delve in and encounter this and apply it as practice as much as possible. So we're back at the mountain. 
And that's what it means when we say Bahar. It's in the first, uh, in the first pasuk, the first verse. And uh, what we are facing here are principles of land tenor. And in particular, chapter 25 of Vayikra of Leviticus is essentially a code uh, practice on the subject of land tenor in ancient Israel among our ancestors. That is actually, this is the only laws preserved in the whole Torah. It is a unique collection of laws and commandments that governs the rights of landowners and the legalities essentially of um, mortgaging and selling of the land. And um, what is important about it uh, that we're going to touch upon is essentially um, whose land is this really? What does it mean? What does it signify? What we are, we're going to share and learn together? And what does it mean for us today? So one of the key things is um, that in this system embodied in chapter 25 is a, a maximum of 50 years known as the Yovel can be the only length of time where someone cannot own land. So let me explain, let me delve in what that means. So first in this Parsha, we learn the earth belongs to God in particular the land of Israel. And so you might buy land, you think you're buying land, you're really more of a tenant to God's land. And so you're never fully your property in this Torah portion. And the idea is expressed in a few different mitzvot, a few different commandments. The first is this idea of Shemitah, which essentially means release. So every seven years, there is a Shemitah year, a, a year where we release the land from the work that we expect of it and that we do on it. And essentially that crops become public property and there's no more work on the land. So anyone can come and eat. That's the first set of laws. The second is this idea of the Yovel. And it is the 50th year when the rules of the Shemitah continue to apply as they do in the 49th year. And as they do, give me one minute, someone's joining us. As they do apply, that the land gets returned to its original owner. And a person who was having, for, for instance, financial money trouble might have had to sell their home or farm. And during the Yovel, they actually get it back. So those are the, some concepts that we have to keep in mind. So one doesn't have to wait for the Yovel. So if their family, if their clan, essentially, their relatives should help them buy back the land as soon as possible, that is in this Torah portion. And it's in a process called Geula which is Gimel Aleph Lamed, which means redemption. We're helping redeem that person. We're helping redeem the land so that they can become a tenant to God's land again. So who, the person who bought and seized their land must be prepared to sell it back for a fair price. So why is this happening, right? What's going on here? What do we have to say about this? So essentially that... Um, Relief is always coming in these set of laws. Relief for the land, relief for people that may have had to give up or sell their land 
during rough times, they might not have had enough seed or it was a famine or who knows what was going on, that someone would essentially in some ways have to become indentured. And so what's happening here, that it was expected that by rendering these kind of land transaction as conditional, that um, it limited the duration and by guaranteeing the right of retrieval by the original tenants or owners, as we want to call them, the debilitating process of disenfranchisement essentially could be stemmed. So you're having basically our ancestors from 2,500 years ago, where we think the, the uh, Leviticus over a long period of time was written during the Persian period, coming to an awareness that we don't want to have land only in the hands of a few families for perpetual ownership, because that ends up creating a society that we don't want to live in, that doesn't reflect how they see being created in the likeness and the image of God. So this is what we're witnessing here. Wonderful ideas, wonderful theories. We always can look at the history of how much scholars think this was actually practiced, but that's what we're going to start with. So I'll just conclude this, uh, what I'm gonna focus on from this Parsha by saying that um, when the land was actually sold essentially in the first place, everyone knew that it would be returned after a certain amount of time. That was just because of these laws, that was the underlying assumption in the transaction. So people understood that it was more of a rental, as I said, like tenancy, like you were a tenant almost to God's land. And the price reflected that. And then the Yovel ensures that no family accumulates land for too long. It gives everyone a chance to stay on equal footing, even if it takes 50 years. And the land is actually God's, as I mentioned earlier. The Yovel reminds us that we never really own what we think is ours, particularly the land. And so I will close with one uh, statement, some beautiful thought that uh, Nachama Lebowitz actually brings, um, one of my favorite Torah teachers. Her students actually uh, created um, new studies in Vayikra and Leviticus. There's a whole set of these for each book. And she actually brings an interesting source. You don't often find this. She brings a, an American economist uh, Mark, do you mind if you uh, hold off comments and questions towards the end? Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, so Henry George is his name, and his years are 1839 to 1897. And he has a book called Moses the Lawgiver. So I just want to pause with the title before I share what he has to say. Because... If you recall my teaching, starting with Bereshit, with Genesis, and then moving into Shemot, Exodus, I showed how we started off with this kind of vigilante justice, where people had a concept of fearing God, and that was a, the language of I fear God meant I have a moral compass, I know right from wrong, and I'm going to behave as such. So for instance, we see this with the midwives in Egypt who refused to murder the Hebrew babies. They say they fear God, and that shows that they're not going to engage in that behavior. So you have this like individual sense of justice, but no overarching rule of law. 
And what happens with leaving Exodus and entering Vayikra, you suddenly have a community and you have rule of law coming, coming through Moshe, someone who himself was a vigilante in his justice, how he treated the Egyptian who was beating the Hebrew slave. And then later on, uh, how he even treated his own brethren uh, with the golden calf, calling for the murder of 3000 of them. So this is someone who has this impulse for, for justice, but needs to be contained by a rule of law. And so he's given this to in order to teach the people too, but it's as much to contain Moshe, I think, and to train him as it is the people. And so here comes this wonderful American economist who in his book, Moses the Lawgiver, Moses learning to be the lawgiver and live by the law. He says he found in the Yovel law a challenge of the perennial cause of social oppression inherent in the absolute possession of land by only a few. And so according to George, the economist, that the Torah as a code of law aimed at ensuring justice, equity, and happiness for those who follow it. Now that's the key. It's sought to avoid the concentration of land, the sources of life, wealth, and power in the hands of the few. And that would reduce poverty and the domination of man by man, end quote. So I'm going to tie this today to two things that are happening along with our portion. Today, still in the West, in the United States and Canada and everyone over in that area of the world, it is still what we call Pesach Sheni, the second Pesach. And um, just to let you know, what is that second Pesach? What's going on here? So in the Torah, uh, there's a case of a group of Israelites who are carrying up Yosef's body from Egypt. And by carrying his body up, they become what's called Tameh, which is impure from being in contact with a dead body. And so they are told that they can't, well, they know they can't participate in the first Passover offering because you can't go and have and give the offering when you are impure. And they feel extremely excluded by this. So much so they even say in Bamibar in Numbers chapter nine, Pasuk seven, that they were feeling hurt that they were not in the midst of the Jewish people. That's very profound. So first of all, you have a group of people who are mindful enough to be aware of how they're feeling about being excluded from the major festival, <laughs> the first that the Jewish people are really going to keep and do coming out of Egypt. And they advocate, they self-advocate. They go to Moshe. They say, this is not fair. He obviously talks to God and God says, there's going to be a second Passover a month from now, and um, they will be able to partake in the, uh, the Paschal Lamb offering, essentially. They will somehow go through a purification process. So lots of people like to call this holiday a holiday of second chances. And that's a value. But as my beloved colleague and friend, Rabbi Micha Berger says, this original group that motivated Hashem giving the holiday didn't actually mess up meaning they didn't mess up anything that they needed a second chance. 
they couldn't join in because they were in the middle of a different mitzvah, a different commandment. They were carrying a body in order to bury it, which is a huge mitzvah, huge commandment. So they say that really it made them hurt. Like, as I said earlier, that they didn't feel like they were in the midst of the Jewish people, that they were being excluded. And for good reasons, even when you're being excluded for good reason, it hurts. So Pesach Sheni is therefore a day for remembering to look around when doing a mitzvah, a commandment, and see who else wants to join in, see who else is being excluded, even if accommodations are needed. It's a holiday of inclusion. It's a holiday of self-advocacy, of people being brave, of really being balanced in their midot as they approach. So I want to bring this in for our teaching into our meditation today. So I'm going to tie it also to where we are in the Omer. So for those of you who don't know what the Omer is briefly, it's this custom of counting each day between the holidays of Passover and Shavuot, the festival of weeks, and it's of biblical origin. And this seven week period is referred to as the Omer and it's, it's an original agricultural offering. And over generations, this counting of the Omer has been embraced by the Jewish people as this period of inner work, as this like spiritual preparation for the receiving of Torah anew, which happens on the festival of weeks of Shavuot. So basically over time, these weeks, these seven weeks, talking about the Shemitah and the Ovel being seven, uh, these seven weeks essentially, um, carry a certain spiritual quality of what we today call a midah, soul trait. And it's a way that one can um, be very awake to the good around them, the transcendence in their lives and express it in this beautiful way of being mindful each day. So this week, so here in Israel, we've already moved into the 30th day. For those of you uh, in the West, you're still in the 29th. And um, this week is considered in the Sefirot, in the Kabbalistic tradition of Chod, of splendor. Um, but more in the Musar tradition and here at our institute, we see a tie to the Midah of gratitude, of Chodaya, in particular Hakarata Tov, this recognizing the good. That's part of the splendor of life. And it has this relationship to that. So when we move into our meditation, you should uh, begin to uh, find yourself where you need to uh, be in your seated position as I begin to speak slowly now. Um, it can be standing, it can be lying down or on a cushion, whatever works for you, but go ahead and begin to adjust and settle and arrive. But as we move into this meditation, I really want you to um, think where can I be more at ease in the present moment? Where can I soften my willful efforts? Where can I soften in such a way to be awake to the good around me, to what is here? Um, basically, even where can we lean in, <laughs> even to the unpleasant? This is the practice this week, where whatever comes up for us, can we meet it? with love? Can we meet it with 
really balanced self-advocacy that we learn from our ancestors in the Pesach Sheni story, in the second Passover story. So where there's pain, we offer compassion even to ourselves. Where there's fear, we offer tenderness. Where there's resistance, we especially offer patience. So please come to whatever upright means to you. It can be a, an internal uprightness. Not always can everyone sit. Allow yourself to begin to settle and arrive. Shut your eyes if you feel safe. Lower your hands on your thighs or into your lap. And take three deep cleansing breaths. It's such a gift to be able to receive the breath. Notice your shoulders begin to relax with each breath. And breath, the gift, the free will offering to us. Out breath, gratitude to the divine that we are here to serve. Allow your breath to begin to just relax and go at its own pace. No need for you to control it. Begin to notice what is here for you right now, right here in this moment. Any thoughts from the past pulling your attention away from my voice or from your breath as an anchor, or perhaps the sounds around you. Maybe you're planning for something in the future. There's no need to push the thoughts away or to attach to them, to identify with them. Just simply note them, even honor them. You can say a mental noting, I will visit you later. For some of us, it might be strong sensations in the body. Whether it's difficulty breathing or tense or soreness, or maybe even excitement in the belly. Simply note it, recognize and allow it. Bring your attention back to the present moment. For others of us, we may be surprised by strong emotions that are arising right now. The desire to speak, struggling with being here and now. We can lean in and let go, be here with whatever arises. We as Jews begin each day with a chance, with a prayer of gratitude, where we say, Monda ani or Monde ani, thanking God for returning our soul. We Buddhists also begin each day with a chant of gratitude for the blessings of life. 
most ancient traditions begin with some form of morning gratitude. Some even prayers of gratitude for the suffering that one has been given. They might learn from the suffering, that they might awaken to the deepest possible compassion and wisdom. Our practice of Musar mindfulness and this aim of our spiritual life is to awaken a joyful freedom, a benevolent and compassionate heart in spite of everything. Gratitude, this hoda, ya, this hakarata tov is a gracious acknowledgement of all that sustains us the great and the small. The appreciation for what sustains our life day in and day out. Gratitude is actually confidence and a blessing in life itself. It gladdens the heart. As gratitude grows through practice, it gives rise to joy. We experience the courage to rejoice. Rejoice in the good fortune of ourselves and others. Rejoice even in the midst of so much pain. We learn not to be afraid of pleasure. We do not mistakenly believe that it is disloyal to the suffering of the world to honor the happiness that we are awake to in the present moment. We know through our practice that we can carry both. As our practice grows in this week of gratitude practice and the joy grows, we finally discover a joy without cause. Allow yourself to sit quietly and at ease. Allow your body to be relaxed and open. your breath natural, your heart at ease. Begin this practice of gratitude by feeling how year after year you have cared for your own life. God has carried you and carried your ancestors who also carried you. carried the land aware of its need for rest, for all sentiment beatings. At its pinnacle, at its best, the laws of land tenure, the Shemitah, the Yovel, 
embrace a concept of community, of connection, that you will be cared for and held. Allow yourself to begin to acknowledge all that has supported you. With gratitude, I remember the people, the animals, the plants, the insects, the creatures of the sky and the sea, the air and water, fire and earth, all whose joyful exertion blesses my life every day. With gratitude, I remember the care and labor of a thousand generations of elders and ancestors who came before me. Allow yourself to say, I offer my gratitude for the safety and well-being I have been given. I offer gratitude for the blessings of this earth that I have been given. I offer gratitude for the measure of health that I have been given. I offer gratitude for the family and friends that I have been given. I offer gratitude for the community that I have been given. I offer gratitude for the teachings and lessons I have been given. I offer gratitude for the life I have been given. Just as we are grateful for our blessings, we can be grateful for the blessings of others. Continue to breathe gently. Bring to mind someone you care about. Someone it is easy to rejoice for. Picture them in all their glory. Feel the natural joy that you have for their well-being, for their happiness, for their success. With each breath, offer them your grateful, heartfelt wishes. May you be joyful. May your gratitude increase. May 
May you not be separated from great joy. May your good fortune and the causes of your joy increase. Sense the sympathetic joy and care in each of your phrases. When you feel some degree of gratitude for the joy of this loved one, Extend this practice to another person you care about. Recite the same simple phrases that express your heart's intention. Splendor is something shared in connection and in community. It shines out from our souls and something meant to be shared with others. It's almost as if you can't contain it. May you be joyful. May your gratitude increase. May you not be separated from great joy. May your good fortune and cause for your joy increase. And our last five minutes as we move into silent meditation. Gradually open your meditation to include neutral people, difficult people, until you can extend this gratitude and joy to all beings everywhere, near and far. I will ring the bell when we are to come out of our guided mindfulness meditation.
From time to time, your thoughts may wonder. And that is just the practice. You simply begin again, bringing yourself to whatever your anchor is here in the present moment. Gently and slowly open your eyes when you are ready, joining us in this sacred circle on Zoom and from all over the world as we take our covenant, our intentions for today to be mindful of who is being excluded. And even when we are doing mitzvot or good deeds or acts in the world to try to include as much as possible and to be aware on more of a global level of who is being excluded from equitable housing or housing at all how can we take these ancient traditions and practices to try to have a just society and care for the other? And I'm so grateful that you've joined us today. We're gonna to open uh, to Mark here, I know wants to say something. Uh, please tell us your name. And for those who, who are listening and watching, you can come off mute if you want to contribute or you can stay on mute or even hidden video, it's fine. All is welcome here. Just so you can say your name and where you're coming from. Yeah, I'm Mark Schneider. I'm from Panorama City, California on the West Coast near Los Angeles in the San Fernando Valley. Um, welcome, Mark. <laughs> and so um, my question is, uh, we're talking about after seven years, the land goes back to the people and we have all these old contract agreements. Are those being followed today in Israel? And if not, why not? And the other question I would have is, what, what are we gaining by going over this kind of material? Is, is it to give us a sense of our identity as, as Jews? And so we go over the Torah and we read about it. So we get to know who we are in the present because of who we are. So those are some of the questions that came up to me. I, I appreciate anything you have to add to that. I'm so grateful for your questions. And I love 
I, I, what I valued about the first time you joined is just your honesty and your, your you know, you come at it with um, what you need to address. And I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Um, and I, I encourage that for anyone who is practicing and engaging. So the first thing, the concept of Yovel, the, the Yovel um, where ownership returns to the original owner, that does not exist in Israel. I don't think that's existed uh, for probably over 2000 years when we were actually unfortunately kidnapped and enslaved and taken out by the Romans. So um, um, yeah, the, the, the Shemitah year though is practice, this idea of that you let the land lay file, fall, like let it rest every uh, seven years and that you are not to benefit from it and you the land can be then considered public property and people can eat off of it. That exists, um, but of course in the modern economy of capitalism in which Israel participates as part of the whole world order, there are all sorts of laws and loopholes in it because we're now dealing with what we call big agricultural businesses. We're not dealing with just small individual farmers. Um, so some of the loopholes are, for instance, that the farm will be sold to a non-Jew so that that farm can continue producing. The problem with that is, among several things, is that the land doesn't get to rest. And any modern farmer will tell you today that there's actually value to the land resting, so much so that really smart farming today will have part of the field that does lie fallow, that doesn't get farmed, and they'll turn it over and switch, uh, you know, year by year. So um, it's mostly where there's high irrigation, because apparently there's too much salt in the um, ground, and it actually can really cause the output of the um, product that's being grown to not produce as much. So there's actually some sound practice and knowledge behind this. Um, so I hope that answers your question about Israel. Um, the, the second question I think is very important. And um, I don't think there's one answer to it. So all I can say is why it's meaningful to me and why I do it. And I would even put it back to you, Mark, and say, well, why are you here? <laughs> why are you studying it with me and encountering it? And you'll have to answer, whether you want to answer that out loud, that's fine. It's up to you. But like, each of us have to work through of like, why are we engaging in this ancient text and this tradition? And that probably changes and probably should over one's lifetime. I don't think it should be the same answer day in and day out and year after year. Um, I can only answer for me, I'm standing on one foot, that this text, the Torah, is beloved to me. Um, some of it is not rational, meaning I can't give you a scientific explanation why. It's just in my heart, it's in my tradition, it's in my family. Uh, I study it daily. Um, it, it, I lean into the struggles uh, and um, I gain so much from it. And I learn something new each year and each Parsha and like as I go around. And so um, it's part of my people. It's part of who I am. Um, and like any ancient tradition, like for instance, I also study uh, some of the ancient Buddhist texts uh, for my practice of mindfulness. And that has issues and issues with history also. Like any ancient tradition is going to have 
difficult texts, things that might not apply today uh, or shouldn't. And uh, there's, there's still something there for me of value and something to engage in. It's about, it's really, to be honest with you, that kind of threefold community, being with other practitioners, teachers, and you know my engagement with God. So I hope that addresses your question, but I don't think it's going to satisfy it because as I said, it's so particular. Um, are you looking for a particular response? Uh, it, it sort of, it applies to something that happened you know, a long time ago. And the world has changed from then to now. And so for me, I look at it because it's still human beings interacting with human beings, and that never changes. It doesn't matter if it was a million years ago, we're people and we act the same then as now. So it, all, it gives me, in a sense, an insight of how, how people have lived and dealt with the same situations that I have today and framed in, of course, in modern times, and they're framed indifferently. So it, you know, the jealousy, uh, it, it the, the, uh, but to start the Torah out with a brother killing a brother, that, that, that's horrific. I mean, what? I mean, why are you starting out with something like that? That should, that should have been cleansed from the Bible a long time ago. They shouldn't have let that, I mean, put that in as, a, as an example of brotherly love or, you know, and, and loving kindness and all this stuff. So that there's things about it that are in there and remain in there. And so it, it makes you realize what, why was that so important to put that in at the very beginning and, and keep it there. And, and then also the other thing is the tree of, of, of good and evil. I mean, hey, you don't need evil. You just have a, a tree of good. There's only good in the world. There is no evil. It doesn't exist. The word doesn't exist. It never happened. It never will happen. So why did God want evil? Okay, that's another one. And so, and all of it is, I don't know, Hey, it's all God. I mean, I'm God. You're God. Everything's God. It's it's uh, Spinoza's um, um, uh version of God. God is all the laws and all the physics and all the matter and everything in the universe. And that's my belief in God. That mm -hmm. God is totality is all. Mm -hmm. And so and so I'm, I'm I'm sort of a scientist and so I have to see some evidence of things. And and it's also a kind of a a, a book of, of knowledge, of teachings. It goes back to all kinds of other civilizations, maybe some of the Hanarabi isn't mixed in with it, and other civil, you know, we, we get, we're part of everything. And um, so I find that very interesting because it gives me a connection in the present to things that went on in the past. And I have an identity. Now, now my identity is not just here in, in you know, 2022. You know, my identity is, it goes back, it's expanded, it goes, all kinds of civilizations, all kinds of ages. You know, I'm a universal person in a sense that I always have been, and I guess I always will be, and I want to know who I am now to yeah. who I will be in the, in the future. So yeah. that's yeah. kind of a quick, that's a quickie uh, without writing a book.
Yeah, on one, on one foot. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful response. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I look forward to even hearing more from you as we continue and like even hear that response a year from now, I'm sure it'll be a little bit different, but so thank you for sharing. I'm very grateful and thank you for your practice today. For all of you joining on live streaming, um, we welcome your donations of any amount or sponsorships from week to week. Just be in touch with us. Do subscribe at kahilatmusar.com. Consider joining us as a member of the community for $18 a month and be in touch with what you would like from the Institute and how you would like to participate. It's all there on the offerings page. And I wish you a blessed week of gratitude practice and splendor. And I look forward to learning and practicing with you next week. And thank you, Mark. And thank you for the other uh, participant who had to leave early. <laughs> Take care, have a great week. Rabbi too, you know that. Yeah, thank you. She, she, she teaches courses. Great, wonderful, thank you. Okay, nice meeting you. I'll yes. try to be next Sunday. Take care. Bye-bye.